Section 4 of Manners, Customs, and Dress. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Donna Stewart. Manners, Customs, and Dress During the Middle Ages and During the Renaissance Period by Paul Lacroix. Section 4. We must nevertheless remember that heavy dues fell upon the privileged class themselves to a certain degree, and if they taxed their poor vassals without mercy, they had in their turn often to reckon with their superiors in the feudal hierarchy. Albert, or right of shelter, was the principal charge imposed upon the noble. When a great baron visited his lands, his tenants were not only obliged to give him and his followers shelter, but also provisions and food, the nature and quality of which were all arranged beforehand with the most extraordinary minuteness. The lesser nobles took advantage sometimes of the power they possessed to repurchase this obligation. But the rich, on the contrary, were most anxious to seize the occasion of proudly displaying before their sovereign all the pomp in their power at the risk even of mortgaging their revenues for several years, and of ruining their vassals. History is full of stories bearing witness to the extravagant prodigalities of certain nobles on such occasions. Payments in kind fell generally on the abbeys up to 1158. That of St. Denis, which was very rich in lands, was charged with supplying the house and table of the king, this tax, which became heavier and heavier, eventually fell on the Parisians, who only succeeded in ridding themselves of it in 1374, when Charles V made all the bourgeois of Paris noble. In the 12th century, all furniture made of wood or iron, which was found in the house of the bishop at his death, became the property of the king. But in the 14th century, the abbots of Saint-Denis, Saint-Germain-de-Prés, St. Genevieve, and a few priories in the neighborhood of Paris were only required to present the sovereign with two horse-loads of produce annually so as to keep up the old system of fines. This system of rents and dues of all kinds was so much the basis of social organization in the Middle Ages that it sometimes happened that the lower orders benefited by it. Thus the bed of the Bishop of Paris belonged after his death to the poor invalids of the Hôtel Dieu. The canons were also bound to leave theirs to that hospital as an atonement for the sins which they had committed. The bishops of Paris were required to give two very sumptuous repasts to their chapters at the feasts of St. Eloi and St. Paul. The holy men of St. Martin were obliged annually on the 10th of November to offer to the first president of the court of parliament two square caps, and to the first usher a writing-desk and a pair of gloves. The executioner, too, received from various monastic communities of the capital bread, bottles of wine, and pig's heads and even criminals who were taken to Montfonçon to be hung had the right to claim bread and wine from the nuns of St. Catherine and the Fille-Dieu as they passed those establishments on their way to the gibbet. Fines were levied everywhere at all times and for all sorts of reasons. Under the name of Apice, the magistrates, judges, reporters, and counsel, who had at first only received sweetmeats and preserves as voluntary offerings, eventually 
exacted substantial tribute in current coin scholars who wished to take rank in the university sent some small pies costing ten sols to each examiner students in philosophy or theology gave two suppers to the president eight to the other masters besides presenting them with sweetmeats etc it would be an endless task to relate all the fines due by apprentices and companions before they could reach mastership in their various crafts nor have we yet mentioned certain fines which from their strange or ridiculous nature prove to what a pitch of folly men may be led under the influence of tyranny vanity or caprice thus we read of vassals descending to the humiliating occupation of beating the water of the moat of the castle in order to stop the noise of the frogs during the illness of the mistress we elsewhere find that at times the lord required them to hop on one leg to kiss the latch of the castle gate or to go through some drunken play in his presence or sing a somewhat broad song before the lady at toul all the rustics who had married during the year were bound to appear on the puy or mont saint clair at twelve o'clock precisely three children came out of the hospital one beating a drum violently the other two carrying a pot full of dirt a herald called the names of the bridegrooms and those who were absent or were unable to assist in breaking the pot by throwing stones at it paid a fine at perigieux the young couples had to give the consuls a pincushion of embossed leather or cloth of different colors a woman marrying a second time was required to present them with an earthen pot containing twelve sticks of different woods a woman marrying for the third time a barrel of cinders passed thirteen times through the sieve and thirteen spoons made of different fruit trees and lastly one coming to the altar for the fifth time was obliged to bring with her a small tub containing the excrement of a white hen the people of the middle ages and the renaissance period were literally tied down with taxes and dues of all sorts says m marie lafon if a few gleams of liberty reached them it was only from a distance and more in the hope of the future than as regarded the present as an example of the way people were treated a certain lord of la guen spoken of in the chronicles of the south may be mentioned every year this cunning baron assembled his tenants in the village square a large maypole was planted and on the top was attached a wren the lord pointing to the little bird declared solemnly that if any villain succeeded in piercing him with an arrow he should be exempt from that year's dues the villains shot away but to the great merriment of their lord never hit and so had to continue paying the dues one can easily understand how such a system legalized by law hampered the efforts for freedom which a sense of human dignity was constantly raising in the bosoms of the oppressed the struggle was long often bloody and at times it seemed almost hopeless for on both sides it was felt that the contest was between two principles which were incompatible and one of which must necessarily end by annihilating the other any compromise between the complete slavery and the personal freedom of the lower orders could only be a respite to enable these implacable adversaries to reinforce themselves so as to resume with more vigor than ever this desperate combat 
the issue of which was so long to remain doubtful. These efforts to obtain individual liberty displayed themselves more particularly in towns, but although they became almost universal in the West, they had not the same importance or character everywhere. The feudal system had not everywhere produced the same consequences. Thus, whilst in ancient Gaul it had absorbed all social vitality, we find that in Germany, the place of its origin, the Teutonic institutions of older date gave a comparative freedom to the laborers. In southern countries, again, we find the same beneficial effect from the Roman rule. On that long area of land reaching from the southern slope of the Cevennes to the Apennines, the hand of the barbarian had weighed much less heavily than on the rest of Europe. In those favored provinces where Roman organization had outlived Roman patronage, it seems as if ancient splendor had never ceased to exist, and the elegance of customs re-flourished amidst the ruins. There, a sort of urban aristocracy always continued as a balance against the nobles, and the council of elected prudhomme, the syndics, jurors, or capitules, who in the towns replaced the Roman honorati and curiales, still were considered by kings and princes as holding some position in the state. The municipal body, larger and more open than the old ward, no longer formed a corporation of unwilling aristocrats chained to privileges which ruined them. The principal cities on the Italian coast had already amassed enormous wealth by commerce, and displayed the most remarkable ardor, activity, and power. The eternal city, which was disputed by emperors, popes, and barons of the Roman states, bestirred itself at times to snatch at the ancient phantom of republicanism, and this phantom was destined soon to change into reality, and another Rome, or rather a new Carthage, the lovely Venice, arose free and independent from the waves of the Adriatic. In Lombardy, so thickly colonized by the German conquerors, feudalism, on the contrary, weighed heavily. But there, too, cities were populous and energetic, and the struggle for supremacy continued for centuries in an uncompromising manner between the people and the nobles, between the Guelphs and the Ghibellines. In the north and east of the Gallic territory, the instinct of resistance did not exist any the less, although perhaps it was more intermittent. In fact, in these regions we find ambitious nobles forestalling the action of the king, and in order to attach towns to themselves and their houses, suppressing the most obnoxious of the taxes, and at the same time granting legal guarantees. For this, the Counts of Flanders became celebrated, and the famous Heribert de Vermandois was noted for being so exacting in his demands with the great, and yet so popular with the small. The eleventh century, during which feudal power rose to its height, was also the period when a reaction set in of the townspeople against the nobility. The spirit of the city revived with that of the bourgeois, a name derived from the Teutonic word burg, habitation, and infused a feeling of opposition to the system which followed the conquest of the Teutons. But, says Monsieur Henri Martin, what reappeared was not the Roman municipality of the empire, stained by servitude, although surrounded with glittering pomp and gorgeous arts, 
but it was something coarse and almost semi-barbarous in form, though strong and generous at core, and which, as far as the difference of the times would allow, rather reminds us of the small republics which existed previous to the Roman Empire. Two strong impulses, originating from two totally dissimilar centres of action, irresistibly propelled this great social revolution, with its various and endless aspects affecting all Central Europe, and being more or less felt in the West, the North, and the South. On one side, the Greek and Latin partiality for ancient corporations, modified by a democratic element and an innate feeling of opposition characteristic of barbaric tribes and on the other, the free spirit and equality of the old Celtic tribes, rising suddenly against the military hierarchy, which was the offspring of conquest. Europe was roused by the double current of ideas which simultaneously urged her on to a new state of civilization, and more particularly to a new organization of city life. Italy was naturally destined to be the country where the new trials of social regeneration were to be made but she presented the greatest possible variety of customs laws and governments including emperor pope bishops and feudal princes in tuscany and liguria the march towards liberty was continued almost without effort whilst in lombardy on the contrary the feudal resistance was very powerful everywhere however cities became more or less completely enfranchised though some more rapidly than others in sicily feudalism swayed over the countries but in the greater part of the peninsula the democratic spirit of the cities influenced the enfranchisement of the rural population the feudal caste was in fact dissolved the barons were transformed into patricians of the noble towns which gave their republican magistrates the old title of consuls the Teutonic emperor in vain sought to seize and turn to his own interest the sovereignty of the people who had shaken off the yoke of his vassals. The signal of war was immediately given by the newly enfranchised masses, and the imperial eagle was obliged to fly before the banners of the besieged cities. Happy indeed might the cities of Italy have been, had they not forgotten in their prosperity that union alone could give them the possibility of maintaining that liberty which they so freely risked in continual quarrels amongst one another. The Italian movement was immediately felt on the other side of the Alps. In Provence, Septimani, and Aquitaine, we find in the eleventh century cities which enjoyed considerable freedom under the name of communities and universities which meant that all citizens were part of the one body they jointly interfered in the general affairs of the kingdom to which they belonged their magistrates were treated on a footing of equality with the feudal nobility and although the latter at first would only recognize them as good men or notables the consuls knew how to make a position for themselves in the hierarchy if the consulate which was a powerful expression of the most prominent system of independence did not succeed in suppressing feudalism in provence as it did in italy it at least so transformed it that it deprived it of some of its most unjust and insupportable elements at toulouse for instance where the consuls were by exception called capitouls that is to say heads of the chapters or consuls of the city 
the lord of the country seemed less a feudal prince in his capital than an honorary magistrate of the bourgeoisie. Avignon added to her consuls two potestats, from the Latin potestas, power. At Marseille, the university of the high city was ruled by a republic under the presidency of the Count of Provence, although the lower city was still under the sovereignty of a viscount. Perigueux, which was divided into two communities, the great and the small fraternity, took up arms to resist the authority of the Counts of Perigord, and Arles, under its potestat, was governed for some time as a free and imperial town. Amongst the constitutions which were established by the cities from the 11th to the 16th centuries, we find admirable examples of administration and government, so that one is struck with admiration at the efforts of intelligence and patriotism, often uselessly lavished on such small political arenas. The consulate, which nominally at least found its origin in the ancient grandeur of southern regions, did not spread itself beyond Lyon. In the centre of France, at Poitiers, Tours, Moulins, etc., the urban progress only manifested itself in efforts which were feeble and easily suppressed. But in the north, on the contrary, in the provinces between the Seine and the Rhine, and even between the Seine and the Loire, the systems of franchise took footing and became recognized. In some places, the revolution was effected without difficulty, but in others it gave rise to the most determined struggles. In Normandy, for instance, under the active and intelligent government of the dukes of the race of Roll or Roland, the middle class was rich and even warlike. It had access to the councils of the duchy, and when it was contemplated to invade England, the Duke William found support from the middle class both in money and men. The case was the same in Flanders, where the towns of Ghent, of Bruges, of Ypres, after being enfranchised but a short time, developed with great rapidity. But in the other counties of western France, the greater part of the towns were still much oppressed by the counts and bishops. If some obtained certain franchises, these privileges were their ultimate ruin owing to the ill faith of their nobles. A town between the Loire and the Seine gave the signal which caused the regeneration of the north. The inhabitants of Mans formed a community or association and took an oath that they would obtain and maintain certain rights. They rebelled about 1070 and forced the count and his noble vassals to grant them the freedom which they had sworn to obtain, though William of Normandy very soon restored the rebel city to order and dissolved the presumptuous community. However, the example soon bore fruit. Cambrai rose in its turn and proclaimed the commune, and although its bishop, aided by treason and by the count of Hainaut, reduced it to obedience, it only seemed to succumb for a time, to renew the struggle with greater success at a subsequent period. We have just mentioned the commune, but we must not mistake the true meaning of this word, which, under the Latin form communitas, expresses originally a Germanic idea, and in its new form a Christian mode of living. Societies of mutual defense, guilds, etc., had never disappeared from Germanic and Celtic countries, and indeed knighthood itself was but a brotherhood of Christian warriors. The societies of the Pays de Dieu and 
of the Treb de Dieu, were encouraged by the clergy in order to stop the bloody quarrels of the nobility, and formed in reality great religious guilds. This idea of a body of persons taking some common oath to one another, of which feudalism gave so striking an example, could not fail to influence the minds of the rustics and the lower classes, and they only wanted the opportunity which the idea of the commune at once gave them, of imitating their superiors. They too took oaths, and possessed their bodies and souls in common. They seized by force of strategy the ramparts of their towns. They elected mayors, aldermen, and jurors, who were charged to watch over the interests of their association. They swore to spare neither their goods, their labor, nor their blood, in order to free themselves, and, not content with defending themselves behind barricades or chains which closed the streets, they boldly took the offensive against the proud feudal chiefs before whom their fathers had trembled, and they forced the nobles, who now saw themselves threatened by this armed multitude, to acknowledge their franchise by a solemn covenant. It does not follow that everywhere the commune was established by means of insurrection, for it was obtained after all sorts of struggles, and franchises were sold in some places for gold, and in others granted by more or less voluntary liberality. Everywhere the object was the same, everywhere they struggled or negotiated to upset, by a written constitution or charter, the violence and arbitrary rule under which they had so long suffered, and to replace by an annual and fixed rent, under the protection of an independent and impartial law, the unlimited exactions and disguised plundering so long made by the nobility and royalty. Circumstanced as they were, what other means had they to obtain this end but ramparts and gates, a common treasury, a permanent military force, and magistrates who were both administrators, judges, and captains? The Hôtel de Ville, or Mansion House, immediately became a sort of civic temple, where the banner of the commune, the emblems of unity, and the seal which sanctioned the municipal acts were preserved. Then arose the watch-towers, where the watchmen were unceasingly posted night and day, and whence the alarm signal was ever ready to issue its powerful sounds when danger threatened the city. These watch-towers, the monuments of liberty, became as necessary for the burghers as the clock-towers of their cathedrals, whose brilliant peals and joyous chimes gave zest to the popular feasts. The mansion-houses built in Flanders from the 14th to the 16th centuries under municipal influence are marvels of architecture. Who is there who could thoroughly describe or even appreciate all the happy or unhappy vicissitudes relating to the establishment of the communes? We read of the commune of Cambrai, four times created, four times destroyed, and which was continually at war with the bishops. The commune of Beauvais, sustained, on the contrary, by the diocesan prelate against two nobles who possessed feudal rights over it. Laon, a commune bought for money from the bishop, afterwards confirmed by the king, and then violated by fraud and treachery, and eventually buried in the blood of its defenders. We read also of St. Quentin, where the Count of Vermandois and his vassals voluntarily swore to maintain the right of the bourgeois, and scrupulously respected their oath. 
In many other localities, the feudal dignitaries took alarm simply at the name of commune, and whereas they would not agree to the very best arrangements under this terrible designation, they did not hesitate to adopt them when called either the laws of friendship, the peace of God, or the institutions of peace. At Lille, for instance, the bourgeois magistrates took the name of appeasers, or watchers over friendship. At Ayr, in Artois, the members of friendship mutually not only helped one another against the enemy, but also assisted one another in distress. Amiens deserves the first place among the cities which dearly purchased their privileges. The most terrible and sanguinary war was sustained by the bourgeois against their count and lord of the manor, assisted by King Louis le Gros, who had under similar circumstances just taken the part of the nobles of Laon. From Amiens, which having been triumphant became a perfect municipal republic, the example propagated itself throughout the rest of Picardy, the Isle of France, Normandy, Brittany, and Burgundy, and by degrees, without any revolutionary shocks, reached the region of Lyon, where the consulate, a characteristic institution of southern communes, ended. From Flanders also the movement spread in the direction of the German Empire, and there too the struggle was animated and victorious against the aristocracy, until at last the great system of enfranchisement prevailed, and the cities of the west and south formed a confederation against the nobles, whilst those in the north formed the famous Teutonic haunts, so celebrated for its maritime commerce. The centre of France slowly followed the movement, but its progress was considerably delayed by the close influence of royalty, which sometimes conceded large franchises and sometimes suppressed the least claims to independence. The kings, who willingly favoured communes on the properties of their neighbours, did not so much care to see them forming on their own estates, unless the exceptional position and importance of any town required a wise exercise of tolerance. Thus, Orléans, situated in the heart of the royal domains, was roughly repulsed in its first movement, whilst Mantes, which was on the frontier of the Duchy of Normandy and still under the King of England, had but to ask in order to receive its franchise from the King of France. It was particularly in the royal domains that cities were to be found, which, although they did not possess the complete independence of communes, had a certain amount of liberty and civil guarantees. They had neither the right of war, the watchtower, nor the exclusive jurisdiction over their elected magistrates, for the bailiffs and the royal provosts represented the sovereign amongst them. In Paris, less than anywhere, could the kings consent to the organization of an independent political system, although that city succeeded in creating for itself a municipal existence. The middle-class influence originated in a Gallo-Roman corporation. The Company of Note, or the Corporation of the Water Trade, formed a centre round which were successfully attached various bodies of different trades. Gradually a strong concourse of civic powers was established, which succeeded in electing a municipal council composed of a provost of merchants, four aldermen, and twenty-six councillors of the town. This council afterwards succeeded in overstepping the royal influence at difficult times, and was destined to play a prominent part in history. 
there also sprang up a lower order of towns or boroughs than these bourgeois cities which were especially under the crown not having sufficient strength to claim a great amount of liberty they were obliged to be satisfied with a few privileges conceded to them by the nobles for the most part with a political end these were the free towns or new towns which we have already named however it came about it is certain that although during the tenth century feudal power was almost supreme in europe as early as the twelfth century the municipal system had gained great weight and was constantly progressing until the policy of the kingdom became developed on a more and more extended basis so that it was then necessary for it to give up its primitive nature and to participate in the great movement of consolidization and national unity in this way the position of the large towns in the state relatively lost their individual position and became somewhat analogous as compared with the kingdom at large to that formerly held by bourgeois in the cities friendly ties arose between provinces and distinct and rival interests were effaced by the general aspiration towards common objects the towns were admitted to the states-general, and the citizens of various regions mixed as representatives of the tiers-etat. Three orders thus met, who were destined to struggle for predominance in the future. We must call attention to the fact that, as M. Henri Martin says, by an apparent contradiction, the fall of the communes declared itself in inverse ratio to the progress of the tiers-etat. By degrees, as the government became more settled from the great fiefs being absorbed by the crown, and as Parliament and other courts of appeal which emanated from the middle class extended their high judiciary and military authority, so the central power, organized under monarchical form, must necessarily have been less disposed to tolerate the local independence of the communes. The state, replaced the commune for everything concerning justice war and administration no doubt some valuable privileges were lost but that was only an accidental circumstance for a great social revolution was produced which cleared off at once all the relics of the old age and when the work of reconstruction terminated homage was rendered to the venerable name of commune which became uniformly applied to all towns boroughs or villages into which the new spirit of the same municipal system was infused end of section four recording by donna stewart seattle washington